recording. And what I first need to say is that it is quite a, quite an honor and, and an unusual oh. thing where uh, a fan of, of somebody's work gets to actually meet the author. Uh, and for anyone who isn't familiar, you are the author of one of the best books on rock music that I've read that I'm aware of. It's uh, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Save Rock and Roll. That's incredibly high praise. Thank you. And and well well worthy of it. I'm quite honestly. Um, I I think the, how I'd I'd like to approach this is to actually ask you about the word occult because as I was researching it and going back to your book today, when you type in occult into uh, pretty much any website, uh, it's usually associated with you know devil worship, satanism, things like that. And uh, it doesn't sound to me like you were using it almost at all in in that context so if you could explain yeah sure i mean you know the 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 sort of um uh, formal definition of the word is just to mean something that's hidden you know to occult something it's occulted just means that it's hidden but obviously that's not how we use the term um really and so what's interesting is that it, the term now really captures a whole spectrum of beliefs and practices and ideas, everything from somebody just uh, using tarot cards, um, a, uh, a Wiccan practitioner, ceremonial magic, yes, devil worship, if such a thing is, you know, we want to argue is, is real in the way that people maybe um, think that it is. Um, certainly there is a broad range of the way in which people believe in things like magic and the supernatural. But the occult typically tends to mean some range of practices or um, beliefs that have to do with the ways in which the human being kind of takes some control over their own uh, spiritual destiny by way of certain uh, ritual practices of some kind. Right. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I think I just lost you in, in video form, but I can still hear you. I'm going to get oh, this fixed. Uh, yeah, I lost you. I, I, I can see myself, but I can't see you there. Uh, let, me, let me fix that in a second. But in the meantime... I do want to ask you, and this is about the, uh, let's say, introduction to the book. And you mentioned that the first time you discovered, I guess, rock and roll, and especially this sort of potent uh, occult-infused rock and roll, was uh, in, in the late 70s. Uh, and obviously, you, you talk a lot about that. Could you, could you tell me, uh, first off, what your experience was, but also what the, the general framework was, was at the time? Uh, you know, re regarding the occult, how it was viewed, uh, and how it was part of pop culture? Sure, around that time, and I can speak specifically to the United States, and it's probably similarly um, in um, parts of Europe, and especially England, but so, you know, my introduction was really because I had older siblings, specifically an older brother, who was immersed in 70s rock culture, I was able to sort of spy, you know, through his record collection, right. what was actually happening. Before that, I mean, I just sort of listened to pop 
you know, top 40 pop music, which at the time was things like the Bay City Rollers. I always like to, I like to listen to all my little plastic cheap, you know, record player, you know, but my brother had the big stereo and he had, um, and so my experience, you know, as a kid, my experience with seeing something like, um, an Alice Cooper record and listening to that or uh, David Bowie in particular, Led Zeppelin. I, it was obviously, you know, let, let's, as much as we're going to talk about these other things, I want to make sure that, you know, we, we say out, you know, that this is great music, however you, you know, so let's just, we're talking about great music and none of this works right? <laughs> if Absolutely. the music itself isn't good. So especially at the time, and I, I personally think the seventies is probably one of the, is really the great decade for, for rock and popular music. Uh, and so, you know, to be exposed at a kind of a young age to that and to see the way in which people were not only experimenting musically, but experimenting with the presentation of the music, right? The album cover art, the lyrics, the kind of uh, public personas that people presented, it all lended this kind of air of mystique. And I don't think I was alone in the 1970s to feel like there was some, some hidden something, some hidden knowledge, some, some special, that these musicians had special access to something. And, Yes, because it's rock and roll and because it's infused with sex and infused with sort of uh, sounds that, that are um, loud and just often distorted, that that whatever they're connected to could feel, especially for, say, a six or seven year old kid, that it's something um, malevolent or evil or dangerous, I think is a better word, right? Um, and so that was also definitely as a result of the pop culture, especially in the 1970s, where I think because the 1960s sort of psychedelic Aquarian dream didn't really come to pass, you know, in the way that people had hoped that, you know, I mean, just sociologically speaking, a lot of really interesting and creative people were severely damaged, you know, by drugs and, and, and alcohol and just these sort of these kind of lifestyles that were in many ways, part of sort of the sixties sensibility, even though it was a hopeful sort of, you know, we're going to have peace. We'll end the war in Vietnam. We'll have equality, right. sexual liberation, all of that was, you know, but there was this darker edge to it. And I think in the United States in particular, a few things happened that really darkened what the 60s meant, especially Charles Manson. It's going this to idea, yeah, Charles Manson, especially the idea that our sort of gurus were maybe actually nefarious, you know, cult figures um i think maybe we maybe we put a little bit too much stock in it but i do feel and i think a lot of people will agree that you know not too long after woodstock there was the stabbing at the um rolling stones 
concert with Altamont, the, right? With Altamont, with the Hell's Angels, and again, just suddenly, where was this other thing that the '60s was supposed to be? Now it's Manson and Hell's Angels with knives. <laughs> it just didn't didn't feel the same. And so, whereas the spirituality of the '60s and even the occult spirituality of the '60s was sort of more brightly lit and psychedelic. By the time we're moving into 70s, at least from the pop culture, it's not necessarily the way people are practicing magic or the occult, but at least from the pop culture, things really did take this dark turn. So have a lot more TV shows and movies about the devil, Satan, you know, the exorcist, of course, is a really important example of that. Um, I, you know, there was a made for TV movie uh, about these kids who worship Satan in their attic and their wow. German beloved family, German shepherd was the agent of the, of the devil. <laughs> you know? So that was even, even just in our, on our primetime television at home, this was sort of the atmosphere of what a non-mainstream Judeo-Christian spirituality really looked like. It wasn't the day glow sixties, psychedelic, Eastern mystical, right? It was something much darker and untoward and, and probably malevolent. And you also get, I guess, the, like, let's call it the pop rock element that's sort of infused with, with that as well. You know, your Kiss and uh, Alice Cooper that you mentioned that obviously they do have a, a darkness, but they're also a bit uh, uh, showy and campy. I, I don't think that's an insult. Exactly. To call it that. That's right. No, exactly. Yeah. And so I do think that those bands and other musicians sort of embraced that darker sensibility, right? Um, because it, it was very commercially successful to do so. And that's why I think it's also important when we talk about the occult that we're not talking about, when I use the word, I'm not talking about, at least for the purposes of, you know, the way in which we're, we're discussing it, um, that there is an actual force at work, and, you know, right. secret conspiracy of powerful things. I'm talking really just about something like a pentagram and you know that a musician is inspired by it in one way but the parents of the kid listening to it also think about it in a certain way and in a more cynical way i think many managers and promotional people took advantage a little bit of that right to sell records but i also think that something else was happening which is that if you're an artist and your music and your lifestyle are pushing up against the mainstream and pushing up against what's considered um, what's considered sort of traditional, it only makes sense that the things you would reach for to define your own inner spiritual life would be things that themselves feel like they're pushing up against what's what's normal, right? So it, it, it seems perfectly reasonable that somebody like um, Jimmy Page would become fascinated with Aleister Crowley. Of course, right? It, it, I don't think it's, um, 
which to be fair, he, he seems to uh, have generally had a, a, an interest uh, in this, not, not just a cosmetic one, uh, but- uh, That's right, a yes. Right. That's right. And, and, but, but, but of course he would. I mean, he's somebody who you know, was a young man who was literally changing the history of rock music. You know, like yeah. while he was doing it, he was changing pop culture. He was absolutely could feel why somebody like Crowley's ideas about will and a libertine lifestyle, you know, not caring what the um, what the church thinks of you, not right. Um, developing your own spiritual practice that puts you in charge, not a priest or a rabbi or any, or a guru, right. It puts you in charge of your own destiny. I mean, of course that's going to be something that page would see as inspiring to him. Right. Um, so, so I don't, so I think that as much as there was sort of a pop culture sort of luridness, but also fear of these things. And there were also musicians and record labels that were sort of excited about how to monetize and take advantage of that. There were in the midst of that musicians that were also serious about how these ideas and these practices could inform them as artists. Right. Um, so I, I, that's, I, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, sorry to cut you off. I, I really love that uh, the book is, is obviously very well informed and very serious, but it also has a, um, a, a comedic tone to it at, at points, which I think the subject does deserve. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Because there are quite a few uh, odd instances and a few odd characters along the way, but you mentioned the idea that um, probably in most cases it wasn't like a nefarious uh, plot that the audience wasn't aware of. Uh, but at the same time, and I'm wondering, was this also a ploy? Because, um, for example, Crowley, just just Crowley, uh, he gets uh, he gets name checked on Sgt. Pepper on on the album cover. He gets name checked by by Jimmy Page, uh, and and you also mentioned, which I didn't know, that uh, Sting on on the Police uh, album cover uh, has uh, has an image of Crowley. I, I hadn't noticed that. I think actually, no, I don't think it's an album cover. It's a photograph taken by Stork Copeland in a book of photographs that he took of just, and it's a photo of Sting reading a. I think that that's what it is. But again, okay. it's staying. Right, right. It's right. still this, yeah. So, but, but that's the thing, I guess, if you were that kind of obsessive fan, just looking for clues, you'd sort of find traces of this and they're not uh, exactly obvious. So one might argue that naturally you'd make a connection that there's some sort of a supernatural conspiracy. Uh, of course, way. of course. And some for some people, they might think that's awesome that there's a supernatural conspiracy at play, but some might think, especially for maybe very conservative or evangelical Christians, that that's a big, that's a problem, right, that needs to be fought against. And so, and I do think that that tension in some ways is what gave us a lot of really cool music and ideas because 
people really wanted to push, our, you know, play around the edges of this. I mean, we see that sometimes taking on a very uh, nasty turn. You know, there was a time and, and he absolutely moved past it and um, was sorry that it ever was a part of his life. But there was a time when Bowie seemed to be um, a public admirer of fascist um, aesthetics, right? Um, he And I think it's partly because he understood the hypnotic power of the performer, right? And in some ways, the hypnotic power of the performer is an act of magic, right? Because you're, you're literally changing people's consciousness by way of some manifestation of your will, right? Um, and I think he recognized the power of that. And, you know, who knows how much of it was the cocaine speaking, but he definitely... Um, blurred the edges there a little bit later in life he would was really i think embarrassed about that moment um and owned it you know but but so it's not always um just it might feel like play um but we see that later also with the british um you know industrial underground throbbing gristle and um, you know, where there was a kind, you know, militant outfits and, um, and obviously there, you know, in the early days of punk, um, there was sort of an embrace of the swastika, but again, it was like, a, it was an FU less than it was an ideology. The problem is, is that, um, I think some people forgot that it was, <laughs> supposed to be just a rebellious thing and started to take on a life of its own, right? right? right. Um, so I think that that's also important about the power of these symbols and the, and the ways in which musicians understood the power of these symbols. And so it gets to this other question of, you know, is the occult real or not? Is magic real or not? Is less important than the relationship that we have with these symbols and how they immediately kind of key into something in our in our sort of lizard brain. Right, right. I I could share in in regards to that. Maybe it makes sense. Uh, and I I want to ask you what you think about it. Uh, you mentioned this was really good music at at the heart of it. Um, in uh, in Eastern Europe, one one of the weird things I guess is that. Uh, extreme metal, uh, especially uh, sort of the um, Scandinavian brand of black metal. Yes, it's, uh, it's very popular and it's, it's always kind of confused me. Um, I don't think it's particularly bad. I don't think it's particularly good. Um, I don't I think, like the Cookie Monster vocals. That's my, I could yeah, never yeah, get yeah. past that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, there were all those stories which I guess turned out to be true about a, a couple of uh, individuals who, uh, you know, there were some uh, church burnings in Norway and uh, yes. uh, the stabbing of, of one band member. What was um, the, there was a book and a movie related to that, All the Light We Cannot See or something like that. What was that? Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, until the Light Takes Us, I think. Until, and, and, yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, yeah. I, I want to ask you about that because I think my theory is that it's, it's so popular in places like Eastern Europe because there was so much... Uh, there was so so, so such a lack of freedom 
that it seemed like you know these people were like the most extreme brand of of, of rock there there was at the time. But at the same time, uh, uh, the book that you mentioned and, and a couple of others, they kind of show that these kids from Norway, um, essentially they were kind of like rich, angry kids. Uh, it, yes, it, there was little Satanism involved, really. <laughs> right, uh, and right. it kind of strips away the the magic. Um, that's right. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm but, but in some ways, that's even more. Um, yeah, we, you know, there's a lot of that. You know, we see a lot of that in. You know, privilege allows you to behave in a certain way, right? When you you know that you might only even get a slap on the wrist if you are acting out. Um, I think, though, that if, yeah, so, but I do think that if you, that there are parts of that, there were certainly parts of that, that where people meant it in a way that continued to perpetuate, you know, some of those ideas and some of the ways in which uh, people responded to it. Right. So nothing happens in a vacuum. Right. On the other hand, though, we can't blame like there's the in the United States. And I think in England, there was this this idea that um, Ozzy Osbourne was telling kids to commit suicide. Right. Via secret messages in that song, Suicide Solution. Right. Um, and, you know, how do you so. People are going to act out because they have an idea of the way in which they think things work. There's also then the exaggerated media about these things. Like we had here in the United States, a satanic panic, we call it in the eighties. And it resulted in really, in many ways, uh, a lot of people's innocent people's lives getting kind of ruined by that, right? People who weren't obviously in any way Satanists or anything, um, but at the same time, it also created a huge market, right, for the heavy metal band that's going to put a, a upside down pentagram on their album cover, right? So right. people also play with the knowledge that these things are going to incite a certain reaction. And we could have a second conversation about does the musician have any responsibility <laughs> to what might happen as a result, but that I don't want to go into that but I, I think it's a you know certainly a question people ask and do you think that the um the mainstream public's uh, appetite for these kind of topics that it's been a bit um exhausted over the years because you mentioned in the book and i i, I thought it was very funny i i think i heard it before that uh, at some point uh D, dungeons and dragons was was targeted as this big uh you know satanic uh, insider um yes. Which sounds ridiculous, to, to be honest, especially now when you have all these video games that are immensely popular. Uh, some of them are, are being considered for the Olympics and they essentially have characters resembling, uh, uh, you know, D&D characters and, you know, monsters and uh, all sorts of creatures. Uh, how do you think the, the sort of the public's perception of that has changed? It's just gotten milder over time. And why do you think that is? Well, I think it's, you know, changing generations, obviously, is a big part of it. And I think, you know, is, um, but I also think that people um, have embraced it in a way that's changed the conversation. Um, for example, there's always been people who practice witchcraft in, in 
you know, in England, I'd say it's all over the world. And some of that witchcraft is arises out of um, especially some things happening in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Gerald Gardner, um, a British uh, who, uh, magician who wrote a book called Witchcraft Today and um, started a whole Wiccan movement. Um, so a couple of other you know, folks like that that sort of helped carry this sort of new um, way of thinking about occult practice that was much oriented towards you know, nature and gods and goddesses without sort of that sort of darker devil, uh, you know, aesthetic, you know? And so, so that's always been with us. We also had the new age movement, which I think was right around the satanic panic eighties time, but was also trying to change the conversation where you had, you know, middle-class um, moms going to the store and buying crystals and getting their tarot read or um, practicing yoga, right? All those suddenly these non-Western or non-traditional spiritual practices are really become part of the pop culture now. So it's harder to say this thing is the devil when there's so many things that we would consider magic or the occult that obviously don't fit into that at all that are very part of the pop culture. Right. Um, but the other thing that happened here, I think, um, was with the, and this happens often during political kind of upheavals, but with the elect, with the election of, um, with Trump becoming president here in the United States, there was also a kind of, um, spiritual response to that that was a, a response having to do with magic and we had uh there's a fellow in the united states his name is um mike hughes and he um started a uh whole monthly lunar ritual to basically hex trump and he got you know thousands and thousands of people were would participate in this you know, virtual, you know, uh, ritual. Um, right. And more and more people were uh, starting to take on or, in, you know, take on with, you know, often witchcraft practices. But also in that side, there's a darker side to that. Also, as much as there's been a sort of what we would consider sort of a liberal sort of spiritual response, um, we've also had um, and I think all over Europe too, an upsurge in uh, what we might consider a, what we might call occult groups that are taking on more of a right wing sort of sensibility as well. Right. Right. Um, so you're always going to have, you know, sort of that, that polarization. But I do think that generally it's harder to say that unless you want to go with like the conspiracy route it's harder for just like the media to call something satanic because that word just doesn't really mean anything anymore in the way right, that it used right. to. I, I should actually ask, I have some, so many things I do, I do want to ask you, but uh, one of them is uh, I think you also wrote a book about um, I guess the human quest for, for meaning uh, in, in a spiritual sense. Uh, and I'm wondering is the word uh, Satanism, as you mentioned it, 
uh, occult, things like that. Did they work particularly well or were they especially potent in that era where uh, Christianity was still very popular? In, in most countries, it's decreased quite steadily in, uh, in, in the last few years. Was that kind of the, the contrast in a way? Yeah, I think so here, especially, but, you know, even though I'm not sure what the figures are, but the, the conservative Christian elements in this country still have incredible political power and clout, right? Um, so, you know, so, so what, even if it's a small percentage, it still has such a, it still casts such a, if I use the word shadow, you know, over American culture and politics. Um, we have something here in the United States, um, uh, the Satanic Temple, which is essentially a, it's a not for, it's a nonprofit organization that um, is very politically active. Right. Um, and so, you know, they, and if you ask them, they say they're atheists. They don't believe that Satan is an actual spiritual manifestation, right? Um, but they have embraced sort of whatever they consider sort of those ideals of sort of freedom of thought and, you know. Are they the personal, ones that, you know? that managed to get the, the statue of... Um, yes, exactly. Right. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so you, you have a lot of that, but it's, you know, and... What I do think, though, that you have in terms of, of music culture, though, which is interesting, is it's less this kind of, you know, uh, blatant sort of devils on your album covers, and more that there are just so many musicians now that really feel like they, I think, have incorporated uh, a practice into their musical um lives you know i mean you still have bands here like ghost uh sure. ghost bc right which you know still do the kiss like alice cooper presentation you have a lot of that um and you there's some great bands um you know that are still sort of borrowing from that 70s sort of occult um stoner rock right. sensibility which you know i still love um, but I think you're also finding more and more people, even popular musicians, you know, they're just speaking more openly about their own practices where there was a time where that would have been scandalous, you know. Right. I, I actually, I should ask you about this. And uh, before I do that, I, I, I want to mention a, a, a very clever way in which the book is structured is that it goes from uh, the very beginning of rock and roll and its connection to the occult until the present day. Um, it, it starts, for example, with, with Arthur Brown. Uh, and I want to ask you about that, but where it ends up is uh, slightly farther away from rock. You talk about pop music and uh, in, let's call it conspiracy theories that you sometimes see on the internet, small occult symbols that you occasionally see uh, big pop artists using. Uh, like like Madonna, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm actually wondering, uh, this is a, just your opinion, if you think that's just like a clever nod and you and she thinks that's going to get her attention or is it uh, something else like people that actually believe in this and they're trying to uh, influence reality in a way? Yeah, I mean, I definitely do just personally do not believe that there is any 
larger occult conspiracy at play in any of this. But I do believe that musicians like Madonna are incredibly clever, smart promoters and understand the power of these symbols, right? And understand the power of spectacle. And like I said before, I do think that that is an act of magic, right? I just don't think that it's, uh, I don't think there's seven or eight people sitting around the table, you know, with a giant pentagram in the middle organizing all, <laughs> all of this, right? Um, I think it's just that some people have, some artists have figured out that there's a lot of power in these ideas and in these symbols. Um, and I'm not even sure I would say that they're necessarily exploiting them. I think that they are also inspired and interested in them, you know? Um, so Madonna, uh, during her uh, Super Bowl uh, halftime show, you know, comes out on a throne and she looks like um, the... Um, the empress of the tarot deck. And that's awesome that she would <laughs> bring the, that symbolism to bear. So whatever you think about her music, right? I mean, I think it's, I think it's very cool. And I think what's even more interesting is she maybe knows that there are people that are going to respond to it in a certain way think that she's an agent of the devil and know that that might actually only increase her, you know, sales of her records or, or eyes on her video. You know, I mean, I don't, so there's a, there's, I think it's both that she's embraced it for herself in a meaningful way, but um, also understands its commercial power. Right. I don't think, I think Alice Cooper, not Alice Cooper, I think Ozzy Osbourne was somebody who understood that, but I don't think Jimmy Page cared about that. I think, you know what I mean? I think he really just wanted to make amazing music, obviously liked the aura that it kind of cast and helped sort of sell records, but I don't think he cynically exploited it in the way like, say, Madonna does did or does and maybe somebody like Ozzy Osbourne you know who kind of you know plays himself as being this devilish figure but then when you ask him uh, uh, you know about he says oh I'm just playing the game I'm just playing around you know right yeah it, it's interesting because uh, you mentioned it, I, I'd be remiss uh, not to mention uh, Genesis Peorage uh, yes and uh, a, a lot of the things um introduced by by Robin Gristle and uh, and later by by Psychic TV um things like the cut-ups and uh um dif different occult elements uh sigils things like that uh, yes. they, they were i guess kind of uh, underground um uh, but later on especially in during the the late 80s and 90s that you mentioned Ozzy and later things like uh, the industrial metal bands like Marilyn Manson and things like that they used similar imagery uh but maybe in a more um commercially viable sense so there's always that That's market right. of what is it gonna um gonna, gonna do it to, to sort of shock an audience i guess 
that's never going to change. It's just the, the line is going to uh, right. get moved. I mean, that's right. When Psychic TV was asking people to masturbate on their sigils, right. I don't think they were looking for mainstream attention. They <laughs> understood that, that, uh, that they were, you know, audiences. Um, but I don't think that they saw their, but I also think they were just artists making their art in terms of the music. And if you, get commercial success great but i'm not sure you know it's just um it was just an authentic expression of you know what it was that they were doing at the time but yes people then will take those symbols and use them in ways um that become more about their um their commercial viability but it's hard to also add intention to somebody i mean the you know that whether somebody how much somebody believes it or how much they're just exploiting it for you know, just to, just to get people riled up. Um, yeah. So sure. it's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, I think also Bowie was somebody who understood the, that he was certainly a, um, a commercial beast. Like, you know what I mean? He was, but he also was constantly was so self-aware of that. Right. Um, that you have things like Aladdin Sane and you have the man who sold the world. You know what I mean? It's just all part of, um, I think the, the genius sort of of his ability to use these ideas, turn them into these, you know, obviously money making <laughs> performances, but still staying, I think very authentically true to, you know, I mean, it's amazing. You can have a musician like Bowie, the level at which, um, the, the level of his success and never really, I don't think being able to say that he sold out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. W were you surprised that in, uh, I guess on his last very, on, on his final album on black star, he returned to a lot of, uh, at least visually the, uh, a lot of those elements he'd quoted before. I know it's yeah it's incredible. I mean I think for him it really was even though we see these as distinct sort of moments that he still saw it as all just aspects of his single self, right? All right. those characters, all those major toms, Ziggy Stardust, all of them, right? Right, exactly. Um, and I, I, I want to ask you in closing, because it's obviously uh, times have changed. And as we as we mentioned, there's always going to be uh, a new generation using occult symbols in, in different ways. Uh, but in the very beginning of the book, you talk, I think you, you, you begin with uh, Arthur Brown and, you know, himself calling, uh, you know, calling himself uh, the god of hellfire. Uh, yeah. He's still performing now. And uh, he... Yeah. Uh, I think he says that you know he's part of a of, of a tradition of uh, of performer, uh, and uh, I can also remember an interview when somebody asked uh, Iggy Pop what, why his shows were so loud, and he said, you know, it's 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 part of a tradition of performance where you get something uh, not necessarily you know a, a mental energy but a, a physical energy, a sensorial energy out. Um, where do you think that tradition is going to carry on uh, going forward? Is, is is it in fact something that's cyclical? Yeah, I mean, I also think that they're also talking about something, especially Arthur Brown, that's even, that's very old, obviously, it's still going, which is sort of a shamanic tradition, right, where you are sort of using 
your body and your voice and sound and uh, to um, carry some message of the gods or the spirits to your community, right? To the audience, right? Um, and I don't think your message or what you're saying has to have anything to do with the occult for that to still be an actual um, phenomena, right? Iggy Pop is still doing that to the audience. Doesn't matter if he uses, you know, any idea. It, so in some ways, the the symbols are relevant to the actual interaction between the audience and the musician, right, or the performer. Um, I think there are a few. I think we're going to see. I think we're already starting to see more of that. Their name escapes me. There's a band. I think that they're a Swedish band that does full ritual um, music. Um, they wear sort of masks. And do you know the band that I'm talking about? I I, I might. I, I know there are a few Scandinavian bands. that it might be a Scandinavian band, yeah, yeah that, that's doing that now. And, um, you know, I think you'll have that where it seems to be that they're drawing on very traditional you know, um, practices, but with a modern sensibility and then bands like ghost <laughs> that, or even sun, right. With all their sort of staging, and they turn the performance into a ritual experience. I'd like to see more of that. I think it's, um, you know, I think the pandemic has totally shifted our whole idea of what performance is going to look like in the future. I mean, hopefully we'll all be back one day fully um, to what that live show can really be. Um, but we might find that there's ways in which people are going to be doing that more with, um, you know, on with online or virtual, um, maybe even virtual reality can be a way that before <laughs> I would imagine, you know, somebody like Bowie would have been somebody who, if he had still been alive and, you know, in 15 years would have started to do something with VR, you know, or something. Definitely. So it's, it's hard to say. So I, I think that the technology is there. And I think that the, that essential thing that's happening with a rock show, the key about this is that it's rock and roll. It's not the occult, but there's something about rock and roll that is perfectly matched to an occult sensibility, which is that the human being is in charge of their own spiritual fate, right? And that we can meet the gods face to face. We don't have to have a mediary like a priest, right? So I think that that's, that's sort of the most important element of it for me. And, and in closing, if, if you'll allow me a, a silly question, um, it's, uh, I was actually just uh, speaking to a, a guitar player, a, a member of a, a band I play in, and he was you know, really angry about a, a different band, not a very good one, that's very successful. And he said to me very seriously, you know, these guys, they, they've definitely been doing some, some rituals to achieve success. Like there's, there's no other way this could have happened. Uh, and it, it seems surprising to me because I, A, I didn't know he was interested in those sort of things. And B, he seemed completely convinced that this was a, a possibility. Um, so for anyone watching and hopeful, hoping that they're 
a mediocre band becomes a, a <laughs> tremendously successful group, uh, would Yakult be a, a, a possible solution? Well, you know, it's funny because if really what you're trying to do is change your inner consciousness and that somehow makes you feel more powerful or makes you feel more, you know, um, maybe it will actually make you more successful because you'll have the inner resources you need, you know, um, but I don't know. Yeah. So I, I think that that, it, can you say who the band is or I wouldn't know who they are? Uh, they're pretty obscure. They're a local band. I, I would, uh, I, I can send you a link if you're interested. They're, okay. not, they're not particularly great. <laughs> <laughs> but they're doing, you're saying that they're, he's, he's saying they're starting to suddenly become successful. Yeah, and, and they have, uh, the one thing that is interesting about them, though, is that uh, they have, uh, you know, they wear masks, and uh, it's this yeah. uh, mixture of uh, electronic music with their identities hidden, so I, I guess that's pretty clever. Yeah, but is there any, um, is it really a surprise that terrible, terrible music can still become popular? <laughs> right, right. I mean, I turn on the radio and hear that all the time. Exactly, yeah. So I guess that that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, conspiracy theorists would go, uh, you know, they've definitely, uh, it's, uh, it's the Illuminati making them successful. <laughs> yes. I guess if that's true, I still don't know to what end. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, listen, uh, this was uh, an immense pleasure and uh, I, I really do mean it. It's uh, I, I've uh, I've gone through uh, a lot of books on, on rock and roll and this is by far one of the most enjoyable uh, Season of the Witch, uh, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. Uh, and if you could tell us in ending where uh, people can find your book. Yeah, really any um, online. Um, and they, I'm sure their bookstores should be able to order it. But I do know that you can get it um, even outside of the U.S. and you know, in the U.K. You should be able to secure a copy. I, I, I did as well, so I can, I can confirm that. And it was... Uh, uh, an amazing read and uh, thank you so much for for your time and uh, great thought-provoking thanks for having me yeah i really appreciate it great to see you this was brilliant thank you have a great day you too